Proud to be sponsored by CBD Vermont. They believe that healthy soils, strong local economies, and plant-based wellness go hand in hand. That's why they work with organic farmers across Vermont to grow the highest quality hemp and produce full-spectrum CBD extracts for wholesale. They've recently launched an online store. You can buy Vermont-made CBD products, including oils, Capsules, edibles, and topicals that have been fully vetted by the staff at CBD Vermont. As I uh, start to get into old age, have some issues with my knees, sometimes they lock up a bit. Doctor said there might be a bit of a touch of arthritis in one of them. And I uh, recently started using the the muscle rub from uh, CBD Vermont. I have to say, I've been a pretty pleased customer so far. I've got some more mobility doesn't hurt quite as much as it used to. Yes, they ship everywhere. And as huge music fans, they're offering our listeners 15% off of all products. So go to cbdvermont.com and use the code BEYONDTHEPOND at checkout to get 15% off. already know that Sirius XM brings you the deepest variety of commercial free music for every genre and for every mood. Where you hear the biggest names in talk, entertainment, and comedy, and hundreds of hand-curated music channels designed to fit every mood. Where you get news from every source. Where you can listen to the newly launched Fish Radio, in addition to Jam On, Grateful Dead Radio, Pearl Jam Radio, Tom Petty Radio, and many more. Or you can listen to top comedy channels such as Kevin Hart's Laugh Out Loud Radio, and Netflix is a Joke Radio, and Sports Talk Radio, from Barstool, the ESPN, and more to keep you up to date on the latest news in the sports world. Most people think that you need a car to enjoy SiriusXM, but you don't. Subscribe now to listen outside the car, on your phone, online, and at home, and get your first three months for just a dollar. Visit SiriusXM.com slash BTP to see offer details and to subscribe. Start listening today. SiriusXM, no car required. Hey, 
Hey folks, I'm David Goldstein. I am Brian Brinkman. You are tuned in to episode 73 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast which, generally speaking, Brian and myself utilize the music of Fish as a means of getting the listener to listen to other bands. Because we love Fish, we are Fish fans. Sometimes Fish fans get to be a bit myopic. They only pay attention to their favorite band and what it means to them and how it revolves around their own universe. Fish is the sun. Everything revolves around them, which is fine to a degree, but there's other bands out there that are nearly as good or as good or even better in some circumstances. And we need to know that you listen to those bands as well. Absolutely. And don't get us wrong. We are always listening to fish, be it fish tour or trying to figure out what the next fish jam that we're going to cover is or throwing each other a show that the other person hasn't heard or participating in the hashtag fish bracket, whatever it may Mm. be, we are listening to fish, but we are also listening to lots and lots and lots of other music and you should be too. And today we are going to do a traditional episode We've covered summer tour for basically the last five or six weeks, whenever it is that you're listening to this. Uh, We did some flashback episodes uh, prior to summer tour, and we're going to do a traditional one here. We are covering a jam that up until probably a month ago, Dave and I had never heard before. This is The Taste from Trento, Italy on July 3rd, 1996. A very unique, a very cool taste that we are excited to cover for you guys. Indeed, I had not heard this jam until I started. Uh, we started hunting around for uh, something to showcase from July of 1996. So, themes that are going to crop up in this episode include best guest appearances, Italo Disco Madness, and exactly what the hell happened during Fish's July 1996 Europe run. And on that note, Let's get to the fish. Right, guys. So like we mentioned, we are covering the taste as well as a portion of the llama that it segues into from uh, Trento, Italy, the show opening, uh, tour opening, I should say, show from the July 1996 tour. This is July 3rd, 1996. Uh, before we jump into everything, uh, some shout outs are in order. We put out a quick little contest last week but, uh, as we were preparing for this episode, gave a couple of hints, see if anyone could uh, guess it. We had some great, great guesses. Uh, we had two winners. Um, and the reason why we're going with two, because one of them came back immediately, which uh, was shocking to us that he actually knew this. The other person showed their work and did some fantastic homework. So <laughs> at Lot Jesus. Uh, Jesus, take the wheel. We are, we are, uh, you are one of our winners here. Thank you so much for, um, 
knowing what this was and picking it out. And then Stephen Grip, who is at SJG042578. Uh, Stephen showed his work, noted that I had been raving about the taste from the Baker's Dozen about a week or so earlier and uh, kind of followed the trail to, to this jam. So great stuff, guys. Thank you for playing along. Thank you, everyone else, for playing along. We'll be in touch with uh, Jesus and Stephen here shortly. Um, to get your selections for future episodes. So why would we pick this jam? Because we had to pick something from the July 96 <laughs> Santana tour. Uh, seriously, though, this is probably a top 10 version of taste that, while not deviating from the strong structure quite as much as, say, um, the Baker's Dozen Holy Night version, nevertheless gets way out there with the help of Santana and Carl Perazzo. And this was the first night of the Santana run. And I was a little surprised to learn, if I'm not mistaken, this is actually the only time Santana sat in with fish during this run, which seems kind of odd. Yeah. You get an opening night. You'd be like, okay, guys, you're on your own. You need to, uh, <laughs> don't need to play you anymore. You got your hose, you're watering the flowers. But it, uh, it definitely peaks mightily with Trey and Carlos Santana with trading licks kind of also playing atop one another, and it segues into a fiery llama where Trey gets an assist from Carlos in the first verse. Like, Trey drops out, and you hear this random guy start to sing llama, and you wonder if, like, some wook jumped on stage, but that's actually Carlos Santana who knows the lyrics to llama. So it's pretty good, Carlos. Yeah, it's pretty good stuff. It uh, really shows the... um kind of way that Carl Carlos uh, kind of took him took fish under his wing for the first couple of years of the nineties as they were touring, as they were growing, bringing them back to Europe after they had really learned how to be an arena band in America. Um, yeah. This is a crazy version and it really starts to deviate from taste in the last three or four minutes and the kind of a noisy, uh, just kind of bizarre way before se- uh, segueing into llama. Uh, but I got to think of the other great versions of Taste, a song that really, if you if you have any tapes from the late '90s, like you have to go two or three shows for uh, uh, your your next Taste. It was played very frequently at that point in time. A um, couple of versions of note: July twenty second, nineteen ninety seven, the Walnut Creek Lightning and Thunder, huge storm version. It's the um, fifth member of Fish, God. <laughs> excellent second set in that show uh august 3rd 97 the gorge it almost breaks free there's like two minutes there where page and trey are trying to push the song just a little bit out there uh november 26 97 at hartford connecticut this is a phenomenal full band version dave i believe you were at this uh version i was great show really, unbelievable uh, show that whole that whole turkey run was out of this world that actually yes. might be the weakest show of the run, which is saying something. Cause that's, that's fall 97 when a show like that is the weakest show. Uh, jumping ahead, 99 had two really great versions. Uh, July 3rd, 99 from Atlanta has this very unique taste. Uh, they almost tease the song Fat. Page is just all over it. Uh, and then in the winter, December 5th, 99 from Rochester, this is the closest thing we get to a type two jam outside of the Baker's Dozen from Taste. It's a really cool version. 
Um, and then 2.0 had a really phenomenal version from uh, February 25th, 03 in Philadelphia. It's a very weird show. If you haven't spun this show in some time, I would highly recommend it. Everything is slightly extended, this included. Uh, and just, it's such a bizarre show. It's not a very good set list, but Kevin, everything holds up. It sounds a lot like a summer 2019 micro jam set, actually. It really does. Yeah, like everything has – nothing like fully breaks free into like your 25-minute jam uh, as you would expect in 2003. But there's there's definitely the 2.0 effect on every song kind of lingers. There's like a lowrider jam, that show? There is, yeah. And Theme from the Bottom is just, is just wild. Uh, and then finally, Dave mentioned this, uh, but it goes – and I mentioned it as well, but it's worth mentioning a third time. The uh, August 2nd, 2017 Holy Night uh, MSG version, 18 minutes, fully breaks free. It's just an incredible version of the song, the kind of playing that you can really only get when you're 10 shows deep into a residency. It's that kind of jams upon jams moment that I just absolutely love it. And just as um, a side note, we've gotten him. Um, this is a good example of Fish having a guest on stage and having it work. Other examples that came to mind was um, Alison Krauss, uh, the May 3rd, 1994 version of If I Could from Tennessee. Bella Fleck. I know uh, the Fleck tones of Jam with Fish in several occasions, but especially um, October 18, 1994, in the second set from Vanderbilt University, when they, uh, the llama starts off acoustic, goes electric. <laughs> so goddamn good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you get uh, Fleck tones as well. July 9th, 1997, the entire, most of the second set. This was the popular pick for what we were going to cover here. Sorry, guys. It's a great, great segment. We just felt like this was a little bit more under the radar. Uh, Medeski, Martin, and Wood came out in Texas in October 14th and 17th, 1995. Play some really mind-bending music with the band. Uh, and Del McCory, uh, July, or June 22nd, 2000, uh, the second set from, I believe that that's, is that Anatoc? Um, yeah, wasn't that the opener of the second show, the tour? The yeah, the opener, I think, of the uh, 2000 tour. Right. Just some really beautiful bluegrass. Then we've got, of course, the Reverend Jeff Mosier, the November 1994 bluegrass run. Carl Parazzo was uh, a number of occasions in 96, most notably uh, Halloween 96 for Remaining Light, of course, and then the November 2nd, 1996 Cross-Eyed Antelope Madness in Florida. And finally, Neil fucking Young, October 3rd, 1998, <laughs> down by the river. I mean, that was almost, that was kind of more an example of Fish guesting on Neil Young as opposed to the other way around, right? Well, I think he came out with them. It's during their set. But yeah, it's definitely Fish playing to Neil style. Like you can see... Uh, Fish is trying to be Crazy Horse in that setting, which was they, – they did a great job of it. Um, and then 20 years later, Trey wrote about to run. Absolutely. Um, so taking a step back, you know, we, we mentioned at the top, what the hell happened during this July 96 Europe run? This is a very, very unique tour. Um, 13 of the 18 shows on this tour were single set openers for Santana. Thus, not a ton of flow developed, and it was clear that the band was still was still uh, trying to figure out um, who they were, 
following their 1992 to 1995 peak. And this is six months after December 31st, 95. If you know anything about 96 fish, you know that there's a lot of ups and downs and there's a lot of searching for this next step that the band couldn't quite get to. And then it unlocked itself for them. Um, like Dave said, this is the lone show that would feel feature Santana, Carl Perazzo. Um, it's just a really awesome to see the partnership with these guys, but, and it's just wild to hear how they're suddenly a young, slightly inexperienced band out of their own element all over again compared to six months earlier, you know? No, it's kind of interesting that we all know that um, December 1995 might well be the greatest month in Fish's history. The December 95 New Year's show could very well be the best show in Fish's history. And they only played two shows before embarking on um, this July 96 tour. And they played a show at Jazz Fest. And then they kind of played a show, what was it like, when they were recording Billy Breeds, they played like a show with Jim Carrey or something. Carrey Stock, I think right. is what it was called. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so really, um, after the Mellish, and that was 1995, they're kind of being the hired help on the Santana tour in a foreign country. Right. And it kind of shows in the sets that while there isn't anything particularly bad it's sort of just like they're playing a whole bunch of like extended first quarters across the board. Right. These are a lot of one set shows that are fairly interchangeable. You know, a lot of high energy fish classics as well as some acapella numbers to show their diversity. It's clear that the focus is on winning the crowd. You know, there's, these aren't really situations where they can kind of step in, know that they've got a familiar audience and uh, know that people will follow them where they go. Um, as for the two setters that are scattered across it, um, you know, they kind of resemble the band who would spend the next four months figuring themselves out again before remaining light provided the next step forward. Um, in some cases, this tour and the remainder of most of 1996, at least until December, or excuse me, at least until November, it's a really fascinating time for Fish because of this lingering tension and kind of questions about what's next. You could compare this in some ways to summer 2014 summer 2016 even parts of this most recent tour that we heard um where it's clear it's not like a peak moment from the for the band so there's a lot of ups and downs there's a lot of searching and in some cases you get really interesting music in it in other cases uh you you hear a band that isn't totally as confident as they are in other periods um it's kind of fish in transition uh, filled with lingering questions about how to move forward as a band and really who they are. And, you know, in some cases, if you're listening to in the right perspective, it's it's a really fascinating time period for them. Of course, um, no discussion of July 1996 would be complete without mentioning uh, the July 12th, 1996 show in Amsterdam. Uh, we're hearing at least once, maybe never yeah. again. I mean, look, some dude just can't handle Amsterdam. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. You look at that set list and you've just never seen anything like it with Fish. It's totally bizarre. So many songs are half finished, especially in the second and third set. There's jamming in places where there's not never jamming. There's segues into atypical songs. It's weird. It's sloppy. Some of it's not very good, but in the end, it's all very, very fishy. Uh, it sounds kind of like, you know, like eating an edible or smoking a bong in like the middle of the afternoon when like you should be doing something responsible 
and you go on stage and you just kind of forget how to be yourself. <laughs> like they just, you, you hear them like stumbling through their act in a really unique way. You have to hear it at least once. It's really bizarre. Yeah, Certainly um, the second set, the versions of Mike's song and Antelope are, uh, yeah, we're hearing at least once. <laughs> this show was actually um, in the summer of 1996. I was turning 16 years old. I think I was at um, Jewish Youth Group Sleepaway Camp. A lot of other young burgeoning fish heads. And someone got a tape at some point, like late July or August. And everyone was like, wow, that's like a ska groove. That's a new song. <laughs> like, what? That was, wasn't a new song. That was just Trey asking for a chord and then playing ska. Yeah. <laughs> I think the closest corollary to it, if you're looking for any shows that kind of uh, resemble each other in this sort of style would be seven ten ninety seven from um, from France, a show that we've been All right. talking All right. about uh, doing a feature on at some point here in the future. Um, that is a much better show. It's a much more focused show, but it's also sloppy and kind of all over the place and very disjointed. I think that both of them kind of work as mirror images of uh, what the band was trying to accomplish in the mid nineties. Um, but of note, just with uh, this tour, the band debuted Train Song in Germany. They dedicated it to all their fans who were following them across Europe, which, I mean, just think about a summer uh, on the train from city to city, small towns, different countries uh, in Europe following fish. That is, for anybody that did this, we'd love to hear your stories because that just has to be the most magical way to see this band evolve and, and do a tour with them. And... Uh, the July 23rd show is definitely worth hearing, if for nothing else, the great performances of Down With Z's, Mike Song, McGrupp, and Runaway Jim. Some really good stuff uh, stuffed in there. That show was from, um, that was Hamburg, right? Like, I believe so. The Mark Hall, the Music Hall, because I'm pretty sure that's the same venue uh, that the Grateful Dead played in like Europe 72. Mm, mm, that's wild. That's really cool yeah. for them. That's actually, um, yep, you're right. That is in Hamburg. Yeah, very good version of Down with Disease and a very interesting Mike song. And I think the Mike's is about 16 minutes, never goes into the second jam. It just really the first jam gets out there, it gets very quiet and very dark and loud again. That's uh, that show is actually worth hearing in full. One of the few on this tour, yeah. We had considered that Mike song and just kind of settled on this, uh, this taste. Well, it didn't settle on it, we, we thought it was just super exciting. And uh, but well, we definitely looked at that Mike song as one worth covering here, so we would definitely encourage you guys to listen to it. So, on that note, let's listen to a little bit of the uh, taste from July 3rd, 1996. <laughs> Oh, 
already know that Sirius XM brings you the deepest variety of commercial free music for every genre and for every mood. Where you hear the biggest names in talk, entertainment, and comedy, and hundreds of hand-curated music channels designed to fit every mood. Where you get news from every source. Where you can listen to the newly launched Fish Radio, in addition to Jam On, Grateful Dead Radio, Pearl Jam Radio, Tom Petty Radio, and many more. Or you can listen to top comedy channels such as Kevin Hart's Laugh Out Loud Radio and Netflix is a Joke Radio and Sports Talk Radio from Barstool, the ESPN, and more to keep you up to date on the latest news in the sports world. Most people think that you need a car to enjoy SiriusXM, but you don't. Subscribe now to listen outside the car, on your phone, online, and at home and get your first three months for just a dollar. Visit SiriusXM.com slash BTP to see offer details and to, and to subscribe. Start listening today. SiriusXM, no car required. All right, guys. Hope that you enjoyed that taste into llama. Uh, really fantastic stuff there. Proof that even on some of the lesser known, uh, uh, less fascinating fish tours, uh, there's some great music that's played. Um, we're going to talk now about uh, in our first segment of music. And, and just to note, we are returning to um, kind of a normal structure here, getting away from what we were doing during the summer tour. So two segments of music plus new album recommendations. Uh, in segment one, we are talking here about best guest appearances. And so what we challenged ourselves to do was to find great moments in uh, studio recorded guest appearances, which was a little bit more challenging than I think we had anticipated. Um, but I think we found some really great stuff here. Uh, I am going to go with Lou Reed's Street Hassle off of the album of the same title and uh, features for one verse. Uh, Bruce Springsteen, which uh, there's quite an interesting story behind how they got Bruce Springsteen and his appearance here. So Street Hassle was the eighth solo album from Lou Reed. It was released in 1978, recorded in both New York City and Germany. And it was recorded using the binaural recording technique, think 2000s Pearl Jam, uh, where multiple mics are positioned just so to create a three-dimensional sound so listeners feel like they're in the room with the performer, when they listen, uh, of note, this sound comes through best when it's in headphones rather than through a speaker, but it's 
pretty wild stuff and the way that this record is recorded um it's definitely definitely worth hearing um songs on this album like real good time together was uh they were old velvet underground songs i think there was a uh theme of lou reed including old velvet underground songs and usually lesser known ones um on his recordings in the 70s and this album is really personal for Lou Reed, and it's among his most critically acclaimed records of the 1970s. Um, this is apparently an account of a uh, three-year-long breakup with his uh, then-girlfriend at the time, um, who has actually not been heard of since uh, the two of them broke up. Uh, she just kind of faded away into uh, normal private life and... Um, uh, that was kind of the end of her public uh, persona. Um, but it's a really incredible record. Uh, you know, I, I would say it's fair to say that Lou Reed is perhaps the most New York artist we've had in rock history. And this record for me just sounds and feels like what I imagine 1970s New York City to sound and feel like as you're walking up and down the, uh, the streets. Um, the track in question here, Street Hassle, uh, it's 10 minutes. It's a three-part suite that features guest vocals from Bruce Springsteen, like I said. Uh, including a line from Born to Run to include his segment. Uh, the song is guided by just a gorgeous and uh, somber riff that's repeated via cello, bass, keyboards, um, until it gets distorted by the end of the track. And Springsteen here, so this was early 1978, he was in the midst of a uh, uh, legally imposed three-year hiatus while going through a contractual dispute with his label. As a result, he was not credited on this record, um, and uh, uh, nobody really knew was Springsteen on this record until uh, they heard his voice, but there was nothing to notate it, uh, and then he would come out with Darkness on the Edge of Town later in the year, which uh, uh, is absolutely amazing record. So we're going to go ahead here. We're going to listen to a little bit of Street Hassle. Uh, specifically the part here with Bruce Springsteen off of Lou Reed's 1978 record, Street Hassle. Believe me, that's just a lie. That's why she tells her friends. It's a real song, a real song that she won't even admit to herself. It's beating her heart. It's a song lots of people know. It's a painful song. It'll always say the truth. It'll last full of sad songs. A painful wish. She won't make it so With a pretty kiss Or a pretty face Can't have its way Don't trance like us We were born to be Love has gone away And there's no one here now And there's nothing left to say But oh how I miss him Okay, Brian, I agree that uh, Street Hassle is a fantastic record. Now we'll tell the folks out in uh, Beyond the Pondland if you want something very humorous. I think it also came out in 1978. Check out Lou Reed's live album, Take No Prisoners, which isn't so much a live performance as it is Lou Reed doing a uh, 
running comedic take on Lou Reed, probably quite influenced by the amphetamines he was abusing at the time. Like the Amsterdam show, definitely worth hearing at least once. (laughs) But, so I'm going to talk about, for my guest spot, I'm going to talk about um, a band called The Baseball Project. And this is actually The Baseball Project with Craig Finn for the Hold Steady on lead vocals of a song called Don't Call Them Twinkies. Now, I'm not sure if we've discussed The Baseball Project on Beyond the Pond before. I want to say that we have, but after 73 episodes, the mind gets kind of hazy. And if we had, you'll just hear about them again because one good turn just deserves another. So this band is completely our shit. This is a super group consisting of um, Steve Wynn from Dream Syndicate and his wife, Linda Pittman, on drums. And then there's three-fifths of what was R.E.M.'s touring lineup, being Mike Mills, Peter Buck, and Scott McKay, also from uh, the Minus Five and Young Fresh Fellows. They're basically, the band plays breezy garage rock where the only subject is baseball. And so, probably one of my greatest concert misses ever. Uh, They don't tour a heck of a lot. And they played a 200-capacity venue in New York City a few years ago that I almost attended, decided to stay home for some reason. In addition to their own very good songs, they they also did R.E.M. songs. So... I could have watched Mike Mills sing uh, Don't Go Back to Rockville in a very small room, and I stayed home, which was lame. So they've got three albums, and while Steve Wynn and Scott McCoy, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, McKay McCoy, sorry, Scott, um, they handle most of the vocals, but they often have guest musicians and guest vocalists because lots of indie rockers just love baseball. So... On their second album, which was titled uh, High and Inside, they have a song called Don't Call Them Twinkies, which is basically Craig Finn singing all about his beloved Minnesota Twins. I repeat, a garage rock song which Craig Finn sings about the Minnesota Twins. Is this the best song ever? It just may be. I also know uh, that Ira Kaplan from Yola Tango kind of plays some guest shoegaze guitar on this album, on a song that's about Bill Buckner, no less, because, of course, Ira Kapp was a huge Mets fan. But if you enjoy the game of baseball and jangly guitar uh, and jangly garage rock, and if you listen to this podcast, then I know you probably might, then treat yourself good and really check out all three albums from the Baseball Project. I think they uh, actually have a fourth one coming out in the not-too-distant future. So let's listen to a little bit of Don't Call Them Twinkies with Craig Finn on guest vocals. Two. You can even ask Vince. 
gully But Sammy Kovacs proved to be a bit too much to crack And the twins went down at seven But they vowed that they'd be back From Nicholas to Hennepin From St. Paul to St. Cloud The Minnesota Twins are making Minnesota proud And we don't buy our titles So that summer's where we stay But these are grown men These are grown men These are heroes Please don't call them Twinkies In the fall of 87, I was pretty much in heaven I got my license and a girlfriend The twins and one a pennant I pray more in the dome than I ever did at church Kirby Puckett had the smile Ken Horvick had the smirk But first we tamed the Tigers Then we were dealt the cards And they came to the Twin Cities To try to make sense of our part It was loud and it was close And it went to seven games But the Twins took home the title And that sweet music played He died in a loop From the south side of downtown Minnesota Twins Are making Minnesota proud So here let's make some noise Come on away those homer hankies These are grown men These are grown men These are heroes Please don't call them Twinkies Alright guys Jumping in here to new album recommendations. Like we said at the top, it's great to be listening to lots and lots of fish. I know that there's lots of people enjoying Baker's Dozen two years later re-listens. There's a lot of uh, great summer 2003 anniversaries. There's a fish bracket, loads and loads of stuff. Plus you want to revisit 2019 summer tour. Always got to keep up to date on what's happening from a new music standpoint. And that's part of what we're here for. Uh, So I'm going to feature a record by one of my favorite, favorite, favorite artists of this decade. Someone who will end up absolutely on my uh, top albums list of the 2010s. And that is Bobby Krillick, otherwise known as the Hacks and Cloak, and his uh, original soundtrack to the film Midsummer. So we featured the Hacks and Cloaks record Excavation uh, in episode four, way, way back when, uh, which was when we covered the MSG 2012 Carini. Um, His work just lingers in death and the underworld. It's so unlike anything else I've ever listened to in my entire life. It just blows me away whenever I hear it. Um, Now, I have yet to see the film Midsummer. Uh, however, I've heard it's absolutely remarkable, and based on the trailer, it looks really fascinating. From what I can tell from the soundtrack, it's terrifying. Now, within the soundtrack, Krillick revels in the terrifying and the beautiful. It's where the two meet that his music shines. This is one of those soundtracks, similar to Trent Reznor's The Social Network and Owen Trick's Point Never's Good Times that really stands up on its own regardless if you ever see the film. I've listened to this record a number of times since it uh, first came out, and every time I hear it, uh, it just sounds it sounds like a record to me. Uh, unlike the record Excavation from 2013, which really lingered in the suffocating black of death for its entirety, Krillick's Midsummer soundtrack matches the horror of terror and sunlight that dots the film. Uh, This is some of the brightest work, some of the prettiest work that we've heard from Krillick, but like the film is expected to be, it throws us into terror when we least expect it. Uh, This is Krillick's second original soundtrack. Uh, He actually worked with Trent Reznor in uh, 2016 
for the original soundtrack of a documentary about a priest in Ukraine who rescues drug-addicted teens from the streets, which I highly recommend checking out as well. Um, So I definitely encourage everyone who is listening to this podcast to listen to the Hacks and Cloak, uh, listen to Bobby Krillick, and check out the Midsummer original score. Uh, Dave, what do you have for us this week? I have a new album by a guy named Darren Heyman. The album is called 12 Astronauts. So this is interesting for me because Darren Heyman in the uh, late 90s and up through 2001 was the front man of a British trio called Hefner. I was a big fan of, uh, they put out four albums, especially like their second album called the Fidelity Wars. They're very extremely British art schooled kind of like snobby pop rock band that had some really kind of funny lyrics, lascivious lyrics. Most of the songs are about girls and relationships, but um, just shot through with a very British wit and flair. I loved them in college. They called it quits. I want to say in 2001 and I, basically just completely lost track of Darren Heyman. It wasn't, um, wasn't conscious. I just figured, okay, Hefner's done. He's on to something else. So I found out about this album, 12 Astronauts, because um, I read a feature on the Brooklyn Vega website every week called Bill's Indie Basement, which details the week in quote, classic indie, college rock, and more. And last week, they had a small write-up on a new Darren Heyman album called 12 Astronauts, which is 12 historical fiction vignettes about the 12 men who walked on the moon, released to coincide with the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. And I said, oh, I haven't heard that name in a while. So I went to his band camp page, and I found out that ever since Hefner broke up, he's been incredibly prolific. I mean, he has about maybe, in addition to the Hefner records, like 17 or 18 other albums on his Bandcamp page. And he has these very cool concept projects. Like he put out a three-volume album called Thankful Villages. And the Thankful Villages in question, that's the term for, um, I guess, some towns and settlements in England and Wales that had everybody... um, in the military during World War II actually come home in one piece. I think there's about 53 of those settlements. And Darren Heyman went to each one and he wrote a song about each one and did a short film and did a painting in each one. And then he also has an instrumental album that's about public swimming pools in England. And this is in addition to lots of pop rock albums. So, and the 12 Astronauts album, it's very good. It's very well produced, extremely cheeky, and kind of a very good reminder of why I fell in love with this excellent songwriter in the first place. So I'm looking forward to doing a deep dive into the man's Bandcamp page. I certainly plan uh, on throwing in some ducats, and you should as well. But yeah, I think actually this album, what I've listened to, it's a pretty good introduction to what he's about. You can kind of tell from the first five songs if you're going to be on his wavelength or not. But uh, yeah, certainly get yourself some Darren Heyman. All right. So final segment here. 
Italo Disco Madness. This show took place in Italy. So let's talk about some Italo Disco. It's a great time to step back into late 70s, early 80s disco music that was taking over Italy and the impact that that had on music once it would reach America. So we're going to feature a couple songs here. Um, I'm going to feature a song called New Life by the group Blackway. So a quick bit bit of history. I know Dave's going to give us a little bit more here in a second, but the term Italo disco is something of an umbrella term covering artists as wide ranging as like ABBA-esque pop to craft work. This track definitely falls in the latter. Uh, it's abstract and the wild side of Italo disco. It's faceless. It's in the shadows. It's experimenting and pushing up against the boundaries of the genre. This is the music that would cross the Atlantic, influence American producers to dip into techno and electronic and dance music in the late 80s, early 90s, and ultimately EDM today. From a fish standpoint, think of this as the music that kind of got into Trey's head in 1996-1997, helping to push fish towards linear musical communication, resulting in the cow funk of 1997, and ultimately the minimalism of 1999. The track in question here, New Life, is a 1982 single from producers Stefano Zito, Carlo Favilli, and Salvatore Cusato. Together, they were Blackway. More of a project than anything as they only released three singles. But this song seemed to alter the trajectory of the style of music going forward and had a huge, huge impact. This is forward-looking, boundary-pushing, and dystopic in nature. And from a technical standpoint, it's very clear listening to this that the group was working ahead of their time and out of their depth financially. Much of what goes into this song is widely available from a tech standpoint today. And uh, the, band, the the group was completely underfunded when crafting this. So it's all of them just trying to figure things out from a resourceful standpoint. There's a mix of high and lo-fi throughout. Many of the lyrics are sung in a combination of broken English and Italian. And part of what this song lacks from a sleek production is really notable today. That's its charm. Think of how raw early LCD sound system tracks sounded, how authentic they felt. These are the exact same, except this is the groundbreaking starting point stylistically. Uh, so this is a wild song. It's about a seven or eight minute long track. We're going to post on our Spotify playlist, but uh, we're going to play a little bit of sample here of New Life by Blackway uh, here for you right now. Go, go, go. Close the door there. 
Brian. Thank you for that. That's uh, definitely the more interesting, spacey, psychedelic side of Italo disco. I'm going to delve into some of the more cheesier aspects of it. I'm going to play um, the Giorgio Moroder single, Chase, and Laura Brannigan's Self-Control. So, um, like Brian was saying, Italo disco, kind of a catch-all for a style of electronic dance music from the late 70s and early 80s. Largely produced by Italian producers and DJs, and there's heavy reliance on electronic drums, sequencers, and sometimes vocoders. Lots of the heavily accented English vocals dealt with subject matters of both love and outer space. And by the early 80s, many of these singles could, uh, you know, rightfully be described as, for lack of a better descriptor, cheesy as all hell. I mean... Usually on Beyond the Pond, we recommend cool genres of music and songs that we want you to listen to. This might be the first time we're recommending you check out something that's more interesting than awesome. I mean, you may be familiar with some of these songs, like uh, Baltimore's Tarzan Boy, Sabrina's Boys. Um, Goodness, what else comes to mind? I don't know, just... And even some songs from older but currently running electronic acts are clearly influenced by the genre, most notably uh, Erasure and the Pet Shop Boys. And there's kind of debates of whether an Erasure song, um, like Always, from uh, I think 1994, can be classified as a tallow disco or simply influenced by the same. Uh, I know more recently, the band uh, from Portland, Oregon, called Chromatics, whose uh, most recent album, Kill for Love, came out in 2012. They're kind of keeping the Italo disco flame alive with the producer Johnny Jewell, whose label is even called Italians Do It Better. I know that band had um, a large hand in the soundtrack to the Ryan Gosling opus Drive on account of uh, their excellent song, Tick of the Clock, being used on that album. And uh, certainly Kill for Love is an excellent pop album, They've been teasing a new album as back as far back as 2014 and put out a handful of singles, but the new Chromatics album allegedly called Dear Tommy has yet to be released and has taken on a Chinese democracy-like aura. So that's a band that's certainly worth checking out. But in terms of what we're going to play, I'm going to play an early example of uh, Talo Disco and Giorgio Moroder's song Chase. That was actually commissioned for the soundtrack to Midnight Express, the uh, classic 1978 movie where the college kid gets caught with hashish and is sent to a Turkish prison and tries to get out. And then I'm also going to play um, a song from 1984 that some of you may know, Laura Brandigan's Creatures of the Night, Euro Cheese Classic Self-Control. And this song, which believe it or not, actually has more Spotify plays than Gloria, Attempts the uh, very 1984 trick of making the considerably Wonder Bread stylings of Laura Brannigan seem mysterious and sexy as she frolics among the creatures of the night. But I love that song. So it uh, comes from a place of love. So let's listen to two um, examples of Italo Disco. Giorgio Moroder's Chase and Laura Brannigan's Self-Control. Chase 
All right, guys. Thank you so much. So, so much for hanging out with us here in episode 73, where we covered the version of Taste, along with a little bit of Llama from Trento, Italy on July 3rd, 1996. I have to imagine if a real Italian was saying it, that town would sound so much more spectacular than my Midwestern accent, but uh, mm. you just got to deal with it. Trento, Italy is what I got. Uh, <laughs> so to be confused at Trenton, New Jersey. <laughs> exactly. I say it and it just sounds like it's from, it's in like Minnesota. Um, so <laughs> in terms of the songs that we played here in association with this version of Taste, we had two segments of music. Number one, best guest appearances where in which we found some great unique under the radar guest appearances uh from some of our favorite artists i featured lou reed's street hassle which featured bruce springsteen for a verse off of his 1978 record david featured the baseball project with craig finn don't call them twinkies uh in segment two italo disco madness i featured blackway's new life Absolutely transformative track. And Dave had Giorgio um, Roeder's Chase and Laura Branigan's Self-Control. Which I prefer to Gloria. Like I said, it's got more Spotify plays, but Gloria will be more familiar to Fish fans and St. Louis Blues fans at this point. So, just a reminder, we're on social media. Twitter, at underscore beyond the pond, one word. Sometimes it's Brian doing it. Sometimes it's me. There's clues as to which is which. Kind of keep you guessing. We have a Simplecast page, Beyond the Pond, one word, dot simplecast.fm. Spotify, we have the totally unwieldy Beyond the Pond podcast song playlist. If we uh, play a song in the show, if it's on Spotify, we will try to include it. That playlist is probably up to over 400 songs now. Put it on, press shuffle, have yourself a good old time. Check out the other fantastic podcasts of the Osiris Network, which we are a proud member. That can be found at OsirisPod.com. And leave us an iTunes review because we read them. We have a good time reading them. And it increases our visibility in Apple land, which is a good thing. Absolutely. And in terms of publishing structure, so uh, we are... Still on the every other week schedule here as we move towards Dicks. We've got a couple special episodes coming out the week of August 12th. We're going to do another uh, dip into one of our favorite uh, shows in late August. We'll do our Dicks episode. And we've got a jam that we're going to be doing an episode on in early September that we have been talking about since the very, very early days of Beyond the Pond. And uh, we'll give you a hint now. It is dedicated at our first fan, one of our favorite people out there in Twitter world. Um, mm. So look forward to those. We've got some great stuff coming here as summer winds down. When we move into the fall, we're going to start talking favorite albums of the last decade. Uh, it's been a really fascinating decade musically. And uh, I think as we both start to wind ourselves into the last half of the last year of the decade, uh, we're both getting a little nostalgic for where we were 10 years ago, what we were listening to and uh, as, as the decade unfolded. So keep an eye out for all that sort of stuff, but you can anticipate us every other week here. I get nostalgic for Obama every day, every day. 
every day just wondering what my life used to be like, what America used to be like. Yeah, I just miss having a president. Miss having a real president. Even when he was wearing his tan suit, he was a real president. <laughs> He's somebody looked, we could be proud. He looked damn good in that tan suit. Tan suit. Come on. Oh, no, he did. He wore it very well. Unfortunately, we got what we got now, and we need to uh, vote extremely, extremely hard in 2020 and avoid the Russian bots and propaganda, which are going to be no doubt be all over your Facebook page. We will try our best not to have the Russian bots invade beyond the pond. If it ever gets to the point where we start talking about an episode of like Taylor Swift or something, you know that the Russian bots have gotten to us as well. So we'll uh, <laughs> try to keep that from happening. But in the meantime, come back in two weeks. We'll have something new and or quite interesting for you. We will hold hands. We'll do our very best to avoid the Russian bot machine while uh, steering you away from fish myopia. And we will go beyond the pond.